joy to be with you guys today. And uh, if I seem uh, a bit tired, it's because I just got back at 10.30 last night from a men's retreat for our church. And I remember when, a couple weeks ago when James asked me if I could come fill the pulpit for him today because they had a, an elders retreat. I thought, oh, well, that works out great. I can preach for James. James can preach for me. And then he said, well, no, we're not coming back until Monday. So, uh, but it works out in the schedule anyway. I'm able to be here and uh, glad, to, uh, glad to fellowship with you again. I was grateful for, again, your partnership this, uh, a few weeks ago in our joint Bible conference. And that was a great joy. I hope uh, many of you were edified by that as uh, those from our flock were. Well, if you would please open your Bible to the 133rd Psalm. Psalm 133. The title of our study this morning is The Fresh Fragrance of Fellowship. As uh, I gathered with a group of our men uh, this uh, weekend, we went up to Lake Arrowhead and rented a large cabin and uh, crammed ourselves in there for two days. A very, very refreshing time. And it was interesting that it was raining the whole time. And so while we didn't get to go hiking or anything like that, there was something very refreshing about being up in the rain when we'd been down here in the dry lands for so very long. And maybe you smelled it this morning as you came out of your house and came here to church, that freshness in the air. Now, if you're into science and all, of course, you know that's ozone. Uh, but... Uh, Maybe don't think of it so scientifically. Maybe just think of it as something refreshing and enjoyable and invigorating that is to your spirits and to your body. And that's something of that kind of refreshment of which David speaks here in the 133rd Psalm. Follow along with me, please, as we read these three verses together. A song of a sense of David. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life evermore. The fellowship of God's people is intended by God to be a sweetly fragrant, a sweet fragrance bringing delight and refreshment to all those who are involved in it. Some of the most memorable times of worship and, and fellowship that I've experienced have been in places of great assembly. As I attended a large Christian university with uh, many thousands of students and met regularly for chapel and then coming to seminary and attending Grace Community Church where you had seven, 8,000 people every Sunday, there is an undeniable sense of excitement and joy to see so many people assembled together for one purpose and enjoying that fellowship one with another. David enjoyed that same sort of experience from time to time in the calendar of Israel. And this psalm commemorates the joy and the excitement of one of those great national feasts when all of the men of the nation gathered together under the name of the Lord. And he describes for us the richness of fellowship and how we ought to prize it and how we ought to practice it. Psalm 133 is one of the songs of ascents, as it's called. It's one of 15 different psalms 
in the in the Psalter. Uh, in the King James, it's called the songs, uh, Psalms of Degrees. Songs of Ascents, these seem to be songs that were written by the children, or sung by the children of Israel as they moved up toward Jerusalem three times a year for the great annual feast. Three times a year, the faithful men of the nation would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover, which was in the months of April and May, and the, uh, the celebration of first fruits in May and June, and then again, the Feast of Booths and Tabernacles and Pentecost in the months of June and July. Now, you may ask, did all of the men of Israel actually come up to these feasts? Well, probably not. We read of very few times in Israel's history where there was a majority of faithful people in the land. But surely there was a great assembly that came. And they would sing together songs like Psalm 133 and Psalm 134 and the Psalms before it to prepare their hearts for the great assembly and the special time of worship and fellowship that they were going to engage in together. These were feasts, these three feasts which I mentioned, were feasts that celebrated their common experience of redemption, the blessing of being in the promised land, and especially of their precious union with their God. Psalm 133 leads us into the celebration of the beauty and the blessedness of fellowship so that we might rightly prize and practice it with one another. Now, there are only three verses in this psalm, and so you can imagine there's not going to be a very in-depth outline for our study. And that's all right. My, my primary purpose this morning in, in bringing a, a message to you from a portion like this, primarily to encourage you and to exhort you. Uh, in some ways, I, I feel like I'm bringing ice to Eskimos uh, you are a church that I can tell loves fellowshipping with one another. I mean, how many other churches do I know of that when they have a church-wide retreat, 80% of the people go, you know? But I, I trust, though, that this instruction from the Word of God will seek to, uh, will have the effect of enriching your fellowship and, if need be, purifying it and causing you to prize it even more. Two simple points today. Uh, in verse 1, we see the blessedness of fellowship declared. And then verses 2 and 3 follow with two illustrations. We have the blessedness of fellowship described. Well, look at verse 1, please. The blessedness of fellowship declared. It begins with the word, behold. Something worth noticing. There's something of value which is about to be spoken of. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is. This term good, it can be used in a number of different ways. It can be used in a moral sense that this is good as opposed to bad. And certainly it is bad when believers do not come together in fellowship. And it's certainly bad when believers come together and they are disunified. And yet, I think the term good here does not primarily have a moral connotation to it as it does almost almost an aesthetic quality to it. That this is not only something morally good, but this is something which is uh, uh, experientially good. Notice what it's paired with. It's paired with the other adjective, how pleasant, how good, how pleasant it is. There is a richness, there is a joy and a, and a happiness and a fullness when God's people gather together as one man 
with one heart. In this verse, David is thinking particularly of the times when all of the men of the various tribes gathered together up in Jerusalem, one of the great convocations. And he describes that union, that fellowship of these people, as though they were a family. The concept of the family of God is something which is not only present in the New Testament. It is a more dominant theme in the New Testament, but it is prevalent in the Old Testament as well. Uh, the fatherhood of God, for instance, is uh, really emphasized in the New Testament, although it is mentioned to a lesser degree in the Old Testament. Well, here we have a reference to the brotherhood. And this seems to be the first time in the Old Testament that the term brother is used to describe people of spiritual relationship. Now, of course, in a, in a broader sense, they did have some real family relationship. I mean, in a sense, Israelites were related to one another by blood, but there's something more than blood relationship being spoken of here in this verse. It is speaking about a genuine spiritual unity. I mean, the tribes of Israel, they may have been related by blood, but I'll tell you, if you, you find a group of people that were more disunified than the nation of Israel... There are precious few times in Israel's history when they were actually united together as one people. Now just read the book of Judges and find all the times that this tribe is upset at that tribe and they're, you know, they're cutting up, killing people and mailing body parts to other people in the nations. They all, Don't come here or we'll do this to you. Very, very disharmonious nation many times. After the conquest, uh, they, they really were not united until the time of David and Solomon. And even in David's time, there were divisions. Absalom, his son, led a revolt. And after Solomon's day, the kingdom split in two, never to reunite again as it had before. So we find out that this unity in the family of God is not something new. It is not something that is a, a, um, a symptom of Protestantism. Sometimes you find people criticizing the church today. Well, how can they be the people of God when they're split up in so many different little groups? Now, it's not a, it's not a new issue. Even in, in days past, centuries, millennia past, this has been a problem. Few precious times of national unity in Israel's history. There was the time of David's coronation in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verses 38 to 40, which describe a time when David... Uh, presided over the whole nation being together and unified and all the tribes concurring that he should be their king. There were the times of Ezra and Nehemiah's reform in which there was a smaller sense of unity in which at least those who had gathered back after the diaspora, after the dispersion in Babylon, had some semblance of unity. Ezra chapter 3, verse 11. But for the most part in Israel's history, what is spoken of here in verse 1 was not a common experience. They were very often a disunified people. Our natural disposition, I think, is to divide. Sometimes there are divisions that are necessary, that is for sure, and the New Testament teaches that. But there is a natural disposition within us to resist uniting together with people, often for very selfish reasons. And this is one of the reasons that our Lord Jesus prays in John 17, verses 21 to 23, that God's people would have a genuine spiritual unity one with another. And in fact, the Lord Jesus Himself established the basis for that unity Himself. 
And he prays to his father, Lord, I pray that they may be one. And so the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul as well, recognizes that there is a tendency within us to split off when we don't need to split off, to segregate ourselves when we don't need to segregate ourselves. And so frequently he tells people within the local churches to whom he writes that they need to keep the unity of the bond of peace in love. I was, uh, we've been teaching, studying together the one another's. Uh, on our communion Sundays at our church. And this last Sunday, we studied together the, the command to greet one another. And it's interesting to see the number of times that that little command shows up at the end of Paul's epistles. Greet one another. And yet, it's interesting, we many times act as though that's not there. We practice instead of avoiding one another. You know, there's, those, there's that group of people in the church that, yeah, I just don't really like that much. And maybe if we avoid them, they'll go away. Or maybe if we ignore them, they'll behave more like we want them to. The Scripture doesn't give us that option to deal with one another in such a way. And when we act that way, we are not prizing the fellowship. We are not viewing it as something good and pleasant. Now, let me say, now, uh, there may be people within your church here, I know there's some within my church, that if it weren't for the Lord Jesus Christ, I would have nothing to do with them. You ever feel that way? And it's true. But the, the, the thing that makes fellowship different than friendship, the thing that makes fellowship go beyond friendship, is that it reaches into a genuine spiritual core of union. And so we can have fellowship and value it and appreciate fellowship, even with people with whom we would not be naturally inclined to spend time with. This psalm was written by David, no doubt on the day that in which he sat up on the hill of Zion and looked out, perhaps at the Feast of Tabernacles or some day like that, and sees thousands of tents all pitched around the city of Jerusalem, as they would do for these great feasts. He picks up his pen, and at the sight of that blessed sight of these people who so often are at each other's throats or don't have much to do with each other, that they set those things aside for the common goal of serving and worshiping Yahweh. And seeing that, seeing that, he writes, how good, how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Now look how he describes this fellowship in the remaining verses. Verses 2 to 3. The blessedness of fellowship described. These two verses are made of two pictures. And at first you might wonder, what on earth does this have to do with brethren dwelling together in unity. I mean, oily heads and wet hillsides. Not exactly the pictures I might think of. They are very different images, aren't they? Oil pouring down over someone's head, dew up on a mountain someplace. And yet, these two images both have something in common. They both refer to something wet, and they both describe something that descends comes from above and falls down below. And together, these two different images speak about the poured out blessing and approval of God upon the fellowship of His people and the resultant richness and enjoyment that results from it. The first image, the image of the precious oil in verse 2, I think teaches primarily this thought. That fellowship is indispensably valuable. 
fellowship is indispensably valuable. Look at the precious oil. It is like, he says, it is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down to the edge of his garments. The precious oil. Literally, the good oil. Same word that's used for how good and how pleasant it is. So there's a, something of a, a verbal parallel running between these verses. And what is described here in verse 2 is a very, very costly and precious ointment. And the concoction for it is described back in Exodus chapter 30. And I ask you to turn back to that passage with me. Exodus chapter 30, verses 23 to 33. In this passage, God through Moses is giving instructions on how the worship and the, temp- the tabernacle and later the temple is to be executed, the various sorts of instruments that are to be made, the various forms of liturgy, and, uh, and here in this passage, the kind of oil that is to be used for anointing the priests and for anointing the holy vessels and instruments within the tabernacle. Uh, let's start at verse 22, Exodus 30. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also, take for yourself quality spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much sweet-smelling cinnamon, 250 shekels, 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane, 500 shekels of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an ointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting and the ark of the testimony, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the laver and its base. You shall sanctify them that they may be most holy. Whoever touches them must be holy. And you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and sanctify them that they may minister to me as priests. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on man's flesh, nor shall you make any other like it according to its composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. Very explicit instructions about how this oil is to be made and how it is to be valued. The ingredients, it seems, would be ground up together and likely then boiled down and the resultant syrup would be extracted, leaving syrup on one side and oil left over. And that residue of the oil would be the holy anointing oil. And notice what it said back in Exodus, that it is not to be replicated. God put His own special copyright on this concoction. This is not something you're supposed to put on before you go to a a fancy feast with your friends. This is something unique and something exceedingly precious. Well, what lesson do we learn from this? Well, the fellowship of God's people is a very, very precious, costly commodity. It is exquisite. It is actually divine. 
It is not to be thought of as cheap. It is not, a, not to be thought of something as um, something that can be disregarded and ignored. It is not to be viewed as inconsequential. This is no cheap Savon counter perfume here. Years ago, I, I didn't know that colognes really differed. I thought, you know, one bottle of cologne is good as another. And I'd have the same bottle sit in my medicine cabinet for several years and uh, use it periodically, you know, when I want to impress people. And I, I remember pulling this one jar out. I think it was called Jazz was the name of it. I don't remember where I got it from. The only reason I got it was because the bottle looked neat. It looked like a keyboard, you know. And, and I, I pulled it out after not using it for a long time and I, and I sprayed it and I thought, that something doesn't... Something doesn't smell right with this. Little did I know the difference in qualities of perfumes and colognes, that a cheap cologne expires rather quickly. But the expensive stuff, you know, the stuff that you gawk at in the aisle at Robinson's May or Macy's or wherever, that stuff lasts a long, long time. Very costly. Very precious. That's the same sort of value and quality that is being ascribed to the fellowship of God's people. Not something cheap. Not something to be just squirted around and left in the shelf. Exceedingly precious. You know, when we, go, when we without good cause, skip assembling together with believers, when we, just, when we wake up in the morning, on a Sunday morning, say, uh, you know... I'm kind of tired today. I think I'll just turn on the radio and listen to J. Vernon McGee. Or I'll, I'll pop in a John MacArthur tape today and I'll go out to the beach and just sort of refresh myself there. You are dis devaluing the preciousness of fellowship. It ought not to be so easily put aside by us. Am I saying that you have to be at every single fellowship gathering, every single meeting, every time the doors are open, you're there. No, I don't want to certainly lay down some kind of a legalistic standard by, like that. But a verse like this, I think, is a mirror to us so we can take a look at ourselves and find out how much do I really value the fellowship of God's people? Do I bolt out the door right after church so I can go get at the restaurants before they fill up? Or do I linger and stay and interact with people and fellowship with them? Minister to them. Well, there's the oil. The costly oil. Look also in this verse at the descending of the oil. We said that this oil was placed upon the head and then it runs down the beard. Specifically, he says, the beard of Aaron. So we know now what kind of oil he's talking about. It's the holy anointing oil. That this oil, when it was poured on Aaron's head, it flowed down not only from his scalp area, but down his beard, his long beard, and then down to his long garments, and drips down off onto the ground. When someone was anointed, oil would—it wasn't just a, you know, it wasn't just like a sprinkling in a Catholic church. You know, this was a lot of oil that was poured over someone's head, and the long, untrimmed beard of a Jewish man would serve as something of a pipeline for that stuff to come down and then saturate the rest of their garments. In the ancient Near East, someone who was heavily perfumed was a person who was given great honor and respect. Not everyone did that sort of thing. Very few people did, really. 
And someone, when one walked into the room and they were cascaded with fragrance like this, you know, this is a person of significance. This is a person of honor and respect and to whom we must give due. This verse specifically identifies this anointing with that of Aaron. And by extension, we know, speaking of his sons, uh, David, of course, never met Aaron, but he knew of his descendants. And it's interesting that on the the priestly uniform that the high priests wore, that one of the things that they had on the ephod was 12 stones, each with the name of one of the tribes inscribed upon it. And you can see some of the imagery and the symbolism here of this anointing, which symbolizes the approval and the blessing of God descending not, over, not only over this person, but also over these stones, which represent the whole nation. And in a sense, Aaron was a representative of the nation. The oil descending upon him represented the fact that God and His blessing and His grace was descending upon His people. And like precious, refreshing oil descending upon Aaron's body, covering the names of the tribes, so the blessing of God covers His people when they assemble together in holy worship. By the time the oil would have reached the hem of his garments, which this verse mentions, Aaron would have been saturated in oil. God has placed His stamp of approval on the sacred assembly of His people. How disturbing it is then for saints to think that it doesn't matter if they slip away from God's fellowship, if they skip church for several weeks, and think that they can maintain God's stamp of approval on their own lives. God has not intended believers to be independent, loose cannons. He made us for community. I mean, God Himself dwells within a community. The Trinity is an example to us of how that we ought to live with one another, as it were. And how we enrich one another when we do so. Who are we to place our stamp of rejection on what God has placed His stamp of approval? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25, in describing the assembling together of God's people, speaks of it as not primarily a duty, but more of a delight. Not forsaking uh, the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. Now, there is a sense of duty in assembling with one another. You know that? There is a sense of duty in the Christian life. But the, the differences between sheer duty and Christian duty is that the Christian's duty is also to be his delight. And when that's true of fellowship, it makes it, the joy factor and the, the sense of peace and the happiness and the holiness of God's house increases. We've said that fellowship is indispensably valuable. You see that here in verse 2. Verse 3 uses a different image with some parallels, a different image that has a slightly different emphasis than verse 2. In verse 3... The emphasis is on the unexpected refreshment, the unexpected reward of fellowship. And if that doesn't jump out to you, I think it will as we move down through the verse. First thing to point out in this verse is the do of Hermon. Who is Hermon and what is he doing with all of this do? Mount Hermon, if you don't know, Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in Israel. 
It's up in the northern portion of the country. In fact, today, part of Mount Hermon is in Lebanon, part is in Syria, and part is in Israel. It, uh, based on how you measure it, it's something like nine to 10,000 feet in altitude, uh, clearly the highest peak in, in Israel. Most of the hills in Israel today are lower than a lot of our hills here in Southern California. This mountain, because of its height, is frequently covered with snow almost year-round. When I was there uh, several years ago in May, there was a large portion of the cap of the hill still covered in snow. It has frequent rain, and a lot of dew as a result of all this moisture up top gathers down around the lower slopes. It's interesting, in Psalm 22, when uh, the psalmist is speaking about all of his enemies surrounding him, he describes his enemies as the strong bulls of Bashan. Now, to me, you and me, that serves us pretty meaningless, but Bashan is the region, it's now in modern-day Jordan, up just to the east of the Sea of Galilee, bordering this region where Mount Hermon looms large, And that area is exceedingly lush and green. And the thought is that bulls of Bashan are strong bulls because they get to eat. You know, they're not like those feeble, sickly things down in the Negev where they hardly get any rain at all. So this is an area that is spoken of with considerable lore. I mean, if you want to be a farmer, I'll tell you, the the Golan, the Bashan, um, Gilead, that area is a great place to be. Lots and lots of water, streams and fountains and springs gushing everywhere. This is where uh, the River Jordan finds its source out of the springs which flow out of the Mount Hermon water system. Those snowy peaks and those rainy hills create a dew of thick layer, of thick levels on the lower hills. It is a, in fact, in the ancient world, not only in the Bible but elsewhere, Hermon was a, the proverbial place for dew. I mean, much like we think of Washington State as the proverbial place of coffee, I mean uh, of rain. <laughs> I suppose both the two go together. Uh, we think of London as the proverbial place of fog. That's the same way that Israelites would have thought about Hermon. Hermon, the place of dew. Totally different from the dry southland of Israel. You know, it's interesting, uh, southern Israel, Judea and uh, parts of Samaria, and then go further south into the, the Negev, the desert area. Very, the weather is very, very similar to Southern California. Uh, in fact, I, I had a professor once who said that he was going to lead a tour of Israel for students who couldn't afford to go to Israel. They'd just drive around Southern California and say, now, if you can imagine that hill over there being, you know, and there are amazing similarities. Uh, the, we have our San Andreas Fault. The, um, Israel has the fault that runs from Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, the Dead Sea, and then down through the, uh, the Red Sea. All that's a fault line. And so they have similar earthquakes like we do, similar weather, similar terrain. It's very interesting. So now think of, think of this area around here. The only reason there's anything green is because there's sprinklers. Uh, think now in your mind of some place lush and green and thriving and refreshing That's the sort of thing that David has in mind in writing this verse. I think back in pre-industrial days, Herman was even more moist than it is today. George Adam Smith was an English explorer and a Christian who toured Palestine and Israel of the whole Middle East area, making notes on the area before it became industrialized. And he said that he uh, woke up one morning 
and looked at the dew around him at base camp around Mount Hermon and said it looked like it had rained. Is that wet? Can you imagine waking up here one morning, looking outside and finding dew on the sidewalks and the streets and everything that was so heavy it looked like it had rained? I mean, we're lucky to get rain, much less dew. Well, that's, that's very much like it is for the folks in Jerusalem. Not much rain. Their rainy season is a little more rainy than ours is, but uh, a very strange sight. And so, David says, this is what the fellowship of God's people is like. We've talked about the Dew of Hermon. Now let's talk about the mountains of Zion. The fellowship of God's people is like waking up in Jerusalem one morning and finding dew all around, just like you were up at Mount Hermon. That's why he says here, it is like the dew of Hermon, not just up on Hermon, it is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. Now what a strange sight to see. What an unheard of thing. Normally the hills in Jerusalem have no dew on them. There is, in fact, in Jerusalem there is no river which flows through the area. There is a few springs, and that's where the predominant water supply was in ancient days. Rains are infrequent. In two of the three feasts at which they would gather at Jerusalem for these great convocations, and two of those three feasts would be during the dry seasons of the year. Only one of them may get some rain. David says, when God's people come together, no matter what the weather might be outside, there is a refreshment, there is a surprising, life-giving enjoyment to it. I'm from the East Coast originally. I, I love thunderstorms. I don't know how many of you are, are West Coast oriented and never been back East. I, I know a lot of people here when they hear thunder, they go, you know, because we have it so infrequently. But I, I used to love sitting in the living room of our house and just watching the rain pour down, watch the lightning. And then the best part is to go outside and open the door and smell the fresh air. How refreshing. But when God's blessing and approval is upon the fellowship of His people, it really doesn't matter what the weather is like outside. It brings its own refreshment. It brings its own delight. And it's very surprising sometimes. I think there, I run into people from time to time who, especially in my church where I have a larger percentage of older people, who will say to me on a, after a, a, a Sunday morning service, you know, I woke up this morning and I was in a lot of pain. And I really thought, I don't know if I should go. But I made myself go and I came in and I'll tell you, I am so glad I came today. Surprising refreshment of fellowship. Now let me give a word of caution here. And that is, with this kind of imagery and the kind of talk I'm giving today, it's easy to get a bit mystical about all this. And, uh, and, and you see it in some praise and worship songs, you know, where the songwriter just gets a little bit carried away and uh, start talking about hearing the flapping of angels' wings and, you know, and I feel the oil running down my back and, and stuff like that. And that's really pressing the imagery far more than David ever really intended it. And I'm, and I'm not telling you that based upon this psalm, you should come to church waiting for some kind of a super emotional zap to jolt you into some level of spiritual experience. 
Now, this is merely descriptive of that which naturally happens when God's people are united together for a common cause of glorifying Christ and serving one another. So, please don't get, uh, don't get weird. Uh, you know, there's also songs about, I hear the patter of rain on the temple. You know, just, come on. Uh, that's not necessary. I'm not, this, this verse is not calling us to become weird or strange. But it is urging us to appreciate, with vivid terms, the preciousness, the costliness, the wonderfulness, the surprising power of fellowship. Now look at the end of this verse. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life evermore. Now this is a little bit difficult phrase to, to unpack especially on its surface. Well, David, why did, you, why did you throw that in? What exactly are you trying to say to us? Well, now let's, we have to define a few things here. One is the term there. For there, the Lord commanded the blessing. What's he talking about? Is he talking about Mount Hermon? Or is he talking about the hills of Zion? That seems quite clear. He's speaking of Zion. Zion, the hill of Jerusalem, the holy hill of the Lord. This is the place that God designated to be the central location for worship. This was the place that the tribes gathered unto. This is the place where the tabernacle eventually was set up and eventually the temple was established after David's day. This is the place where God, the one place on the earth, the one place on the earth where you could go to see the saving work of God in person. This is the one place of real estate in the world that God placed His special stamp of ownership upon. This is the one place in the world you could go to see the great sacrificial system at work. This is where the center of Israel's worship was to be found. He says, there the Lord commanded the blessing. Now that is, that is honestly a peculiar expression to our English ears anyway, to command a blessing. Blessing, go there. You know, is that uh, a little strange to, to our ear, but not so much to the ear of an ancient Israelite. The term command in the Old Testament does not mean only um, an imperative telling somebody what they must do. It's not just your father commanding you to take out the trash or what have you. But when we're told that God commands... It is more, again, it's more than just direction. It is actually revelation. In fact, in Psalm 119, which in virtually every single verse mentions the Word of God in some way, there's a number of different synonyms for the Scripture. Uh, there is the testimonies of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord. One of them is the commandments of the Lord. And by that, we should not, mean, we should not read that just the do's and don'ts that God has said. But really, commandment, and that's in that psalm, is being used as a synonym for revelation. And even the verb to command can be used as a synonym for to reveal. In fact, look at one of these. Flip over a few pages. Psalm 119, verse 138. And you'll see an example of this. Verse 138 your testimonies which you have commanded are righteous and very faithful. 
Well, again, if you have a very narrow definition of command, that's not going to make sense to you. How do you command a testimony? You, stand up and give a testimony. That's not what it's being spoken about. No, command is being here used as a synonym for reveal. The testimonies which you have authoritatively revealed are righteous and very faithful. So now, with that thought, come back to Psalm 133 and put that lens on as you read this phrase. For there, <coughs> for there the Lord revealed the blessing. This is the place, says David. This is the place now where we come to see and experience and know that God is doing a saving work. Zion, the hill of sacrifice. Zion, the place where God chose to establish His earthly home. Zion, the hill from which the light of salvation was to go out to all of the Gentile nations. Zion, the place where the God of life chose to be praised most of all in the world. And the place where people gathered together to celebrate the new life and the blessings of the covenant that were given to them. There, God commanded the blessing. And the blessing spoken of in particular is, is not just the blessing of enjoying the land, although that was a rich blessing that Israel had. It was the blessing of eternal life. Don't let people tell you, by the way, especially critics and skeptics if you're in a secular university, that the Old Testament had no concern for personal salvation. That's just, it's just not true. The Lord revealed on Zion the blessing of eternal life. It's there where the sacrifices which spoke of Messiah were performed. And isn't it interesting that it was there on the hills of Zion, that the Savior came and the Savior died. And life evermore was forever secured for those who would come in faith and trust to Him. At the beginning of uh, our study this morning, I spoke of the excitement of entering into uh, worship with the great assembly. And I'm sure many of you have gone with a throng someplace to hear a speaker or to go to a service and have been greatly encouraged by that. Rarely do worship services, though, approach the size of major public venues like that. Your church, comparatively, is a small church compared to mega churches. My church is a smaller church than your church. And uh, it's easy to look at the big boys, you know, with their multi-thousands of dollars and people and millions of dollars really and thousands of people and to think what what's significant is taking place here? Why should I be interested in this small little group? You know, uh, a year or so ago I went with uh, a couple in my church to Anaheim Angels game and uh, we were cheapskates, you know, so we, we took the, the seats up in the upper altitudes about halfway up, we set up base camp, you know, took in some oxygen and then continued our climb. Uh, so many people, tens of thousands of people there. And I couldn't help but think to myself, you know, I've, I have never been in a Christian assembly of this size. Rarely, very rarely do Christian assemblies ever get to such size. And sometimes when they do, the reason they get that big is because they're maybe not doing things the way they ought to. 
But you know, Hebrews chapter 12, which is a very rich portion of Scripture, and I, I think we ought to turn to this as we close today. Hebrews chapter 12 is a, a portion which encourages professing Christians to whom this writer was addressing. In the book of Hebrews, there are Christians who have come out of Judaism and they are a bit intimidated by the trappings of the Judaism from which they came. Judaism had a temple. Judaism had a priesthood with flowing costly vestments. They had ritual. They had tradition. Thousands of years of tradition. And now these people, they come and trust Messiah. And where do they meet? Well, originally they try to meet in the courtyard of the temple. But they get booted out of there. And they end up meeting in houses. Well, how special is that? They don't have the great convocations like they used to. They don't have the fancy outfits. They don't have the gold vessels. They don't have the fancy liturgy. It's the very primitive. And many of these folks were really struggling with that and thinking to themselves, what is this little thing I'm a part of? Wouldn't it be better just to go back to the old ways, worship God as we have done before? Maybe we could still worship Christ there. And all throughout the book of Hebrews, the author is challenging this perspective, saying, you need to understand now, Christ is better than Moses. Christ is better than the old sacrificial system. Christ is better. Christ is better than the angels. And on and on you can go. He comes in here to chapter 12 and verse 18. And he's going to explain how the Christian fellowship is better than even the assemblies of old, and particularly the Judaism of their day. He says in verse 18, For you have not come to the mountain that can be touched, and that burned with fire and the blackness and darkness and tempest. This is referring to Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given and by extension the Mosaic system. Verse 19, And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded. And if you so much as, uh, so much as a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned or thrust through with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. The author is saying, no fear. You are a part of something far, far better than whatever you may have been involved in before. When you gather together for worship, says the writer, it's as though you're gathering together with all the saints of all the ages. And the church on earth has union with the church in heaven, not in a, not in a mystical way in which we experience and, you know, and talk to saints and things like that, but there is a union between God's people on earth and God's people in heaven. And we are now, though we are still down here below, we are citizens of the new Jerusalem. 
And we have, through Christ, come unto Mount Zion. And so, I say to you, value your fellowship. Value your worship. Your fellowship down here is a foretaste of the great gathering to come. We may not have a huge assembly at our churches, but we do have a great, we are part of a great group of pilgrims marching to Zion for the eternal grand assembly. And just as the Israelites of old sang psalms like Psalm 133 on their way to Jerusalem to tune their hearts and prepare their hearts for the worship in which they were going to engage. So we too are on a pilgrimage, not to an earthly city, but to the new Jerusalem. And our worship down here ought to be a tuning of our hearts, a preparing of ourselves for heaven. God desires His church to be a little foretaste of what the kingdom of God to come is to be like. God help us to so prize and to practice fellowship with one another. Our Father, it has been good and pleasant for us to be here today. And we thank You for the richness of Your Word as we've looked in what is surely a psalm that is not trafficked often from the pulpit, seldom taught, and yet we find in it many great exceeding truths, precious promises. We thank You for the reality of Your presence, of Your blessing of our assembly. Father, we've come together today not, not out of some secular common interest. Uh, we are no rotary club. Uh, Lord, we have come because we love Christ. And thus we love one another. Lord, we pray that You would enable this church to know more and more each time it gathers the richness of the fellowship with which You've blessed it. That each member would prize this costly gift that You have provided. May we then in turn lift up our voices in praise to You for Your great grace to us. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.